0: From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. Presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, former BBC Spotlight presenter Justin Lee... I would get emails
1: saying, Justin Lee was simply shouting at that poor Prime Minister today or that poor so-and-so he was interviewing. It was unreasonable that he should be shouting at them. And I was thinking, oh dear, did I
0: shout? And Steve Ricketts of Sherford.
2: Not many people can say they're involved in building a new town and it is inspirational stuff. It is fairly spiritual to see that development happen. (laughs)
3: Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to the In Conversation With series of podcasts where I get joined by people from around the region with interesting stories to tell. And I am very, very lucky today to be joined by Justin Lee. Hello, Justin. Hello, Stuart. Yeah, so most people will know you from Spotlight days, I guess. Yes, I was at Spotlight for over
1: 20 years, so as a reporter to begin with. She so then... she started at 10? Yeah. Clearly, because you're still looking so young. <laughs> well, that's very kind. No, I was no, I was, how old was I when I started at Spotlight? I was 27, I think, right. when I started there. And I came there as a reporter back in 1997 mm. and stayed there until
3: 2020. Wow. That's quite a career. I'm going to ask you some questions about that in a minute. The first thing I've got to say is quite funny. I've got your bio, which yeah. is nice, but it doesn't actually say anything about Justin. So I'm going to need to find out a bit more okay, about you. Yeah. But I also asked Fitz David Fitzgerald. I said, "Come on, there must be a funny story, a bit of dirt, something you can give me that I oh, can sort no. of bring up in the interview." From Fitz, uh-oh. And, <laughs> no, he was, either there is none because you're pure as the driven snow, or, or he's very loyal because he said I've paid him well. He said, "There's nothing. He said, there nothing." he said, "There is nothing." He said, "You're just a really nice guy."
1: Oh well, that's very kind. No, I guess when I was presenting Spotlight particularly and working for the BBC, I've always tried to keep myself out of the news. In fact, when I left Spotlight, I was asked how I wanted my departure marked on air and how I wanted it handled in the local media. And I was thinking, in the local media, is it really going to be that interesting that I've left Spotlight? And my bosses were adamant that something needed to be said and a press release. You can't just
3: not appear one day. No.
1: So they said a press release has to go out. And I said, OK. And then they said, what do you want to do on air? And I said, could I have 20 seconds at the end? Normally, we had 10 seconds on a standard Spotlight to say goodbye. Yeah. And I said, could I have 20 that night? So I thought I'll have another 10 seconds just to thank everyone. Yeah. And say this is my last program and goodbye. And that's all I wanted to do. And that was mostly because I didn't want the program to be about me. Mm. And I'd never wanted it to be about me in all the time I was doing Spotlight. I just felt I was looking after Spotlight after a long line of fantastic presenters before me, Hugh Scully, Mm. Jill Dando, all those people who'd presented Spotlight. And I really felt in their shadow, to be honest. And I just thought, I'm only here to look after Spotlight for however long I'm allowed to do it. And it's not about me. So when I left, I didn't want that last program to be about me. But they made, they me made it the about you. Well, they were very kind. They said, look, we feel it should be more than 20 seconds. We feel the public will want to see hmm. a proper goodbye and a look back at what you've done on the program. So I sort of reluctantly agreed to a short video of some of the things I'd done over the years. And then, unbeknown to me, they'd put together this incredible video of people right across the Southwest, viewers, and well-known people, celebrities who live in the Southwest, Tim Rice, Martin Clunes, people like that. They must have cut mine out. (laughs) Sorry. But all these people who live in the Southwest and watch Spotlight. Yeah, yeah. And they all contributed video messages, which that was the moment that got to me most. Did you manage to hold it together? Not quite. Not not as well as I'd hoped. And this is why, again, I wanted it to be a low-key affair because it was a big moment for me to leave Spotlight and as I said I didn't want it to be about me we were in the middle of a pandemic there were lots of big news stories going on and I said to my boss at one point no, I don't want it to be about me because we've got too much serious news to cover. Yeah. We've got proper news to cover. My departure from Spotlight is not news. But she argued that it
3: was. And well, that I think it is. you have been part of our lives for a long time. And it's funny you should say that because I spoke to one of your former bosses before you retired and your name came up and he said you were the most professional, lack-of-ego journalist he'd ever worked with. And he said, if I could ask Justin to go and do a piece with the Queen, you would. But if I said, can you go and cover that village fair, you'd have done it with just the same amount of <laughs> well, that's very um, kind. joy and excitement. Is that yeah. because you're naturally inquisitive? You like talking to people? I
1: think so. I wanted to be a broadcaster of some kind from as far back as I can remember. And mm-hmm. I don't quite know why. All I can say is that growing up in the Southwest, we didn't watch Spotlight. We mm-hmm. watched ITV and It was Westwood Television then. I remember Westwood. So it was the likes of Ian Sterling and Judy Spires and Fitz and people like that who were all on and Ken McLeod, people who were presenting Westwood Diary and doing the announcements between programs. And watching as a child at home in Cornwall, it looked like they were all having fun. It looked like they had the most amazing time together and broadcasting looked really exciting. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, I was obsessed with broadcasting and wanted to be in broadcasting in some way or another. So that's how it all started. And then I suppose then I became more inquisitive because I was looking at what the job would entail. I thought, well, if I am going to be a broadcaster, Mm. what do I need to do? Mm. And I realized I needed to be inquisitive. I needed to ask questions, needed to have curiosity, Mm. wanted to find out and work out where things had gone wrong, hold people to account, that sort of thing on behalf of those who watch and listen. So, yes, that all started from about the age of six when I suddenly realised television was a very fun medium and that's what I wanted to be in.
3: Oh, will bet. Funnily, you should mention that. I've got a couple of questions about interviews you've done and stuff like this. So I, I suppose everyone will want to know who's the most famous person you've interviewed?
1: Ah, well, now that's a good question. I've interviewed lots of people from different walks of life, so I suppose they're famous in their own way, in different ways. Well, I've interviewed a few prime ministers, so I interviewed David Cameron a few times when he was prime minister, interviewed Boris Johnson a few times, not only when he was prime minister, but when he was a senior government figure, when he Mm. was running the Brexit campaign, you'll remember, came down to Cornwall on that famous bus. Mm. (laughs) I remember interviewing him in a brewery. So you can can draw (laughs) your own conclusions on that. But anyway, yes, I've interviewed prime ministers. I interviewed the Countess of Wessex once, proper sit-down interview, which is unusual. You don't get to sit down with many members of the royal family and interview them. But she was coming to the Devon County show, I think it was, and she was the honorary president that year. And we were looking at how we were going to cover the county shows. we always do, who are the people we want to speak to. And we were sitting down and I just said in a meeting one day, well, why don't we ask if we could interview the Countess of Wessex? And everyone looked around and said, no, they will never go for that, never go for that. And I said, well, you can only ask. Why don't yeah. we put in the request now and see what happens? And then the message came back that, yes, she would. She came to the BBC marquee and sat down in front of me and there were no limits put on what we could chat about Wow It was all very relaxed and informal because I was expecting there to be a lot of Yeah guidelines free uh, requirements yeah, yeah, you know we had to agree to various things but no we were allowed to sit down and it was a very relaxed informal chat she talked primarily and I kept it primarily about the show I didn't want yeah. to wade into too many no. dangerous areas of conversation yeah. so it was mainly about her public duties and going to things like county shows but yeah, yeah Yeah, that was a good sit-down interview. Talking about famous people, and way back when I was on Radio Cornwall, so this would have been the 90s, I guess, I interviewed Kylie Minogue, but that was only on the phone. So (sighs) I didn't get to meet her, sadly. Darn it. Yes. But only on the phone. But she was as delightful on the phone As you would imagine she would be She's gone back to Australia
3: hasn't she Otherwise I suppose I I could have asked her to come on this show She's not been in touch She must have heard I'm (laughs) single But for some reason I don't know maybe word hasn't reached her yet You should be so lucky Yeah yeah I should be so Very good very good So is there anyone you desperately wish you had interviewed and you think,
1: oh... You know, talking of royalty, I've had a long-held ambition coming from Cornwall and being passionate about this part of the world to sit down and interview the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Cornwall, because I just thought we'd have a lot to ask him about Mm. his involvement in the Duchy of Cornwall. Mm. I didn't interview, but I met the Duchess of Cornwall. Mm -hmm. She came to BBC Plymouth to open our new studios a few years ago, and she came on a tour of the building before she officially opened and she came into the studio and my boss was showing her around and introduced me when she walked into the studio and she said yes I know who you are and she watches Spotlight quite often she's got family connections members of her family live in the Southwest, and when she's down visiting she sits down and watches Spotlight so that was quite an unusual thing to think that the Duchess of Cornwall sits down and watches us sometimes or watched Spotlight sometimes when I was on it but I never got to interview her I had a very nice chat with her but didn't get to interview her. So yeah, I think probably top of the list would have been someone like Prince Charles. I would have liked to have interviewed him.
3: It's funny, I always Desperately wished I could interview or chat or meet Barack Obama, yes. which is an incredible man with so much to tell. Yeah. You know, I'd love to meet the Queen and talk to the Queen, but yes. I suppose there's very few people who get to ask her a question because you don't ask royal. Well, questions.
1: I didn't even mention her because she would be top of anyone's of course. wish list, what but it's said. almost impossible, I would imagine. She's, as far as I know, never given an interview, not in the formal sense. There mm. have been occasional documentaries where she will have mm. made the odd
3: comment. but Well, isn't she incredible for that? yeah I mean, who wouldn't want to occasionally yeah, I can't think of anybody who wouldn't occasionally want to set the record straight on a couple of things, but she's never given into that as she. The
1: closest you could get, I guess would be interviewing the now late Duke of Edinburgh. On one hand, I would have loved to have sat down and interviewed him, but on the other hand, it would have been terrifying because I've seen others interview him and he didn't right. suffer fools gladly at all and you would have to be absolutely pin-sharp and do all your research yeah. and not put a foot wrong, because if yeah. you did, he would call it out. And quite so, rightly, well, I yeah. guess. And that's the thing about interviews, and perhaps we'll come on to this, I'm teaching youngsters now journalism and media at Marjohn University in Plymouth, and one of the things I say to them is you can never prepare enough, No, because if you get one thing wrong, some interviewees will be very gracious and either not mention it or will carefully correct you but some interviewees will shut down yeah they'll just say well i don't know where you got your information from but that's wrong when that happens to you and it did happen to me occasionally in interviews you really are struggling then to regain the upper hand as the interviewer If you've been shown to have not done your research properly, you're on a bit of a sticky wicket then for the rest of the interview.
3: I suppose it depends on the context. I was lucky enough to meet the Duke of Edinburgh once, and he couldn't have been more charming and more friendly and and nice, but it wasn't in any sort of controversial setting. I wasn't asking him questions. I was introduced to him at the start of a yacht race, and people I know who've met him say he was an absolute gent.
1: Well, one of my favourite memories of my time on Spotlight, we did a special programme on board HMS Ocean out in yes. Plymouth Sound, when the Queen came down to present new colours to the Royal Navy, and she did it on board HMS Ocean on the deck, and we covered the ceremony on a special programme. And then afterwards, we retreated to the very top of HMS Ocean. We'd finished our broadcasting, and we thought we'd just go up as high as we could get. You know, it's a very tall ship, as yeah. you could go up very high on the superstructure. And we were standing looking down to the water and we saw the royal barge, the launch come. Mm. And we thought, oh, it must be that the Queen is leaving. She'd been at an official mm. lunch after the ceremony with the Duke of Edinburgh. And so we were just looking down and seeing what was going to happen next. And then out came the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh to get on this launch. And the Duke of Edinburgh just happened to glance up at that point and so we waved and he waved back very graciously and then tugged the Queen's coat and made her look up and she waved as well I don't think she had a clue who she was waving at but we were very pleased that she waved to us and the Duke of Edinburgh had as well
3: Yeah I think he was a very considerate guy I mean the story I heard was about a dinner at Buckingham Palace and it was after the Brighton bombing Yeah, and Norman Tebbet and his wife were there and Norman Tebbet's wife was very severely disabled after the bombing and I heard her tell this story that she relied on Norman Tebbet to cut up her food because she wasn't strong enough to do it but he being a politician would get engaged in conversation and so he wasn't doing that so she ended up picking up her chicken and eating it and apparently there were a few sort of frowning faces that you know this is terrible at the palace that you pick up your food and one of the royals looked round saw what was going on and it was the Duke of Edinburgh and picked up his chicken and ate it and I uh-huh. thought what a charming man yeah. he just realised yeah. well I'm going to do it You know, yeah. who's going to tell me or, yeah you know. exactly yeah. but yeah so is there a favourite interview or story something you look back on and you just go ah, oh, it all came together or? do you know funnily enough it happened the other day I was looking
1: back at some old material that I'd done some previous filming mm-hmm. because I wanted to show the students that I'm working with at Marjon various ways you can tell stories on television the various techniques you can use and I found And I think it's the thing I'm most proud of. We did a series of films about how the Southwest was affected by the First World War. And we did it over a whole year. We looked at various stories. And I went to where the Battle of the Somme had taken place and had found the Devonshire Cemetery where members of the Devonshire Regiment were buried and told their story, but also told stories about how people at home had been affected by the First World War. And I met the son of the author of Tarka the Otter, and he'd been serving in the First World War, and he was telling me about his father and how the story of Tarka the Otter had come about. Mm. And we were sitting in this little shed in a garden where the story of Tarka the Otter had been written. And he was in floods of tears by the end of it, recalling his father and his father's love of the story of Tarka the Otter. And I watched these films back and we had really spent a huge amount of time putting them together, researching Mm. them, finding very moving stories. And they were an incredible record of stories that if we hadn't sort of collated them might have just disappeared with time. So I was really pleased that we had gone to the effort. We'd gone to Belgium, we'd gone to France, we'd gone all over the southwest collecting these stories and putting Mm. them together in a series of films for Spotlight and I think that probably is still one of the main things I'm most proud of because they were beautifully done Mm. I can't take full credit for them, they had a great producer, great camera operators working on them and great editing skills to turn them into lovely pieces of television and I was simply the reporter and presenter of them but they were still fabulous stories and I'm really proud of how they came out.
3: I think that's a marvellous thing to do I mean those stories are so important and without that, they'll drift away. They'll be forgotten. Yeah. They shouldn't yeah. be forgotten. And it's funny. One of my questions was going to be, and I think you started, I think, to answer this. But have you ever been emotionally drawn into a story? Because, oh, yes. Well, because I, yeah. I love like a baby. So yes. easily, I would be hopeless <laughs> reading too. the news. No, I would. Because when you see some of the most yeah. awful things or powerful yeah. things or tragic things, I wouldn't be able to get it out. How
1: do you do that? It's funny. It happens for some reason. I guess this happens to everyone. Maybe not everyone, but many of us anyway. As we get older, I don't know why you suddenly realise the fragility of life. And I guess when you lose family members as well, and so loss becomes more personal. And I did find as I was getting older, it was more difficult to deliver some of those stories Mm. without being emotional. And I tried desperately to always be as neutral as possible. Again, I never wanted it to be about me. In fact, I'll tell you a story on this. In the last year I was there, obviously the pandemic was going on. And within, I think, about three weeks of lockdown starting so we're talking sort of late March early April I was asked one day I just presented the lunchtime news and I was about to go and have a quick break and one of the producers said to me we've just had a phone call from the wife of a man and one of the earliest people in Cornwall to have died of Covid. And she wants to do an interview explaining why it's so important to be careful with social contact, etc. And it was only within about three days of her husband dying. And so they found me. I was about to change and go off and have something to eat. And they found me and said, would you go back to the studio and record this interview? She's available now. So, okay, I went into the studio. She came up on a Zoom call in the studio on the screen and started to talk about her husband and I was talking to her about the circumstances of his death and so on. And the way she was talking, she was very together. It was me that broke down. Mm. I started to have tears and a lump in my throat, still am now talking about it. Mm. And I didn't want that to go out because I thought I don't want the social media reaction to this interview mm. to be, all. Oh, look, Justin Lee is upset mm. by this. So it was pre-recorded, and I took the unusual step of saying, could we edit my question out there Mm. when it goes out on air so that we don't see that? And we did. We took it out because I thought, well, it's... We're trying to to tell her story, not my story, not my reaction to it. It's not about my reaction as hard as it was. So, yeah, there's that occasion. And I remember also I was at the Boss Castle flooding. On the day after it had flooded, we went up and presented spotlight from this devastated village Mm. And I was interviewing a lady, Trixie, she was called. I remember her name. And she owned a little shop in Boscastle, which was completely wrecked. Water up to the ceiling. It was a complete mess. And I was interviewing her about it live on Spotlight. I finished the interview and then introduced a video film. So I was off air for a few moments. And we'd gathered around us some holiday who just wanted to watch what was going on. And one of them was a little boy, and he'd listened carefully to Trixie telling her story, and he came over and offered his pocket money. Oh, my God, to that help would send me off. Yeah, and I yeah. just, you know, that was another touching moment I had to carry on with yeah. the rest of Spotlight with that in my mind. So, yeah, there have been lots of times when we're constantly dealing with people who were, you know, at the lowest moment in their lives. Yeah. And that's why they've ended up in the news. And then to have to interview them and hear their stories but then there have been moments when those tears have been tears of joy we had this wonderful man sadly passed away now called verdon hayes i know that and a hundred years old he jumped out of a plane yes he was a second world war veteran and he was the most amazing character and we had him into the studio a few times to be interviewed he was just charming wonderful man and we arranged with his family for him to receive one of the highest honors from France, the Legion d'Honneur. Mm. And we had the French representative in the Southwest hiding in the studio, behind the scenery, with the Légion d'honneur. I Donneau. remember this. I remember And it. we were just chatting to Verdon Hayes, and then partway through the interview, we asked the French representative to come in, and mm. live on air, it was presented to Verdun. And again, that was a heart-stopping, touching yeah. moment with a lump in my throat, but yeah. for good reasons. That was a happy, joyful moment to have a tear in my eye. <laughs> I think that's great that you've done those sort of stories. Still
0: to come... Steve Ricketts of Sherford.
2: It's always exciting when you have friends down to visit and you can just take them down to the Barbican and the Ho and the Royal William Yard and they're like blown away.
0: Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. Those are the
3: sort of highs and lows in terms of happiness and joy and the sadness and when there's loss. What about tricky interviews? Have you ever got angry inside with <laughs> a politician or something yes. if they're lying and you just want to say you?
1: I suppose the interview, and this is timely as well in many ways, he's in the news for other reasons now, Owen ah, Patterson. Right. But there was an interview I did with Owen Patterson some time back when he was the Environment Secretary. And it was about the badger cull. And the badger cull had just finished for that year. And the results had come in. And the critics of the badger cull had pointed out that... The government couldn't argue it was a success because midway through the cull, the rules and regulations had changed. So the target that they'd set out with had changed and some of the other things had changed midway through. But the government had sent out a press release that day claiming that the cull had been a success. So I interviewed Owen Paterson. And I put the question to him that he couldn't describe it as a success because on every front he had moved the goalposts. And his response was, no, we haven't moved the goalposts. The Badgers have moved the goalposts. And there's a... Uh, Oh, my. It never never got used on air, but there's a cutaway shot on the camera. We were recording all the cameras Hmm. in the studio and there was one camera on me. And I was subsequently shown the recording of my reaction and my mouth dropped open which was very funny, but then we put that interview out, and of course this went everywhere. Yeah, I bet it was all over the social media and everywhere. The environment secretary had said the badges have moved the goalposts, and all sorts of cartoons and memes were made about it. I'll there bet. were some brilliant cartoons of cartoon badges picking up goalposts and moving them away. Yes. So that was the funny interview, but there were moments of frustration in that interview. But there were often with whatever politician I interviewed oh, right. from whatever party. There were moments when in my ear, I was being told I had only 30 seconds left and I still hadn't got the answer I was after. And mm. those were the most frustrating interviews because saying I, I never wanted it to be about me. But I did always take it really personally. And I would go home in the evenings and kick myself for not asking this question, or not asking that question, Mm -hmm. or not pushing hard enough on this, or pushing too hard. I was criticised
3: quite often for being too hard on some people. Really? I think that's your job, though, isn't it, in some ways? I mean, not to be unkind, no, but I think the same. If you've got someone in front of you and you're representing, like I represent business, and I've got an opportunity to represent business to someone, I'm going to ask the question that my members want to ask. Same with you, you're representing the public. Well, that was always my motivation.
1: It was funny because... Some people didn't understand the rules of engagement on an interview. Mm. For journalists to interview politician or whoever is in the news, journalists should be allowed to ask questions. And if they're not getting the answers, to say I'm not getting the answer Mm. and force the question again. I think possibly occasionally I let my frustration get the better of me and you would sometimes hear my voice go up and up and get a little bit louder. And especially if I was interviewing someone via satellite and they were out on location somewhere and I knew they couldn't hear me very well or there was a delay, there were all sorts of technical reasons where I would start to sound like I was shouting. And to some viewers at home, I would get emails afterwards because I would think, well, I wasn't shouting. I wasn't that to be angry. heard. But I was being forceful. But I would get emails saying Justin Lee was simply shouting at that poor Prime Minister today or that poor so and so he was interviewing. It was unreasonable that he should be shouting at them. And I was thinking, oh dear, did I shout? And I'd go home and self analyse and think, oh, maybe I could have handled that a little bit better. But it's live television. And as much as you can research for an interview, if it goes off on one tangent and you've got to start chasing the interviewee down that tangent and get them back on track in a limited amount of time,
3: they those interviews can spiral out of control. Of course, and politicians particularly are very good at driving the interview in the direction they want it to go in, not necessarily the direction you do. But you never did the exploding tomato or whatever that guy called himself. Do you remember who screamed at someone? No, I never screamed at anyone. (laughs) he really did go, didn't he? (laughs) He called himself an angry tomato or something because he'd gone bright red in the face and was
1: screaming But the funny thing is, you always got, and I used to try and keep it in context, certainly towards the end of my television career, social media played a big part in viewer feedback Back. Mm. And you had to take it in context. We had on Good nights, Spotlight had three, four hundred thousand viewers, you know, and on exceptionally good nights, half a million people mm. watching. And you may get 50, 60 comments and they may be 60, 40 angry with you or praising you. But you had to sort of take that into context. Well, that's 60 comments out of 500,000 people watching. Yeah, yeah. So the majority either don't care what you did or they were happy with it or didn't have enough of a view to express it but it was quite hard sometimes you've got that relentless feedback from people and it was often critical or angry because it's very easy to sit and watch
3: a tv program and then fire off an email or a tweet a tweet well this is thing that direct connection mm. between the presenter and the audience it never yeah. happened before no did it? no and that leads me on to my next question actually which was going to be about how things have changed because mm. you know when you started your journalistic career things were very different to how they are now where everyone's got a camera everyone's got a microphone yeah, everyone's a journalist. Yeah. How's it changed? What have you seen in the biggest changes? It's changed massively.
1: In fact, I was only having this conversation recently. We were presenting coverage of the Remembrance Sunday parade on the Hoe for YouTube. So this was being delivered direct to viewers all over the world on behalf of Plymouth City Council and an independent production company were staging it, and it was being streamed live, but to a television production standard. And it suddenly occurred to me. In the last 20 years, less than that, where if you wanted to get to a big audience, you had to hope that someone like the BBC would come and cover your story Mm. or stream your event live or put your event live on television. Now, with not that much outlay, because the technology is available to so many people and really good technology, Mm. you can stream your own event to your own audience on your own channel and bypass the mainstream media completely. Yeah. And I think that's been the biggest change, the fact that you don't need to rely on the BBC or Sky or ITV or whoever as a mainstream media. Mm. You can set up quite well, your own television channel or radio channel, here we are doing a podcast in the most amazing facilities. Yeah. They're comparable with anything the BBC has got. So that's been the
3: biggest change, I think. And is that a change for the better? I mean, because it does give voice sometimes to people who perhaps we don't yeah. want to hear their voice, or should we hear their voice? I don't know.
1: Well, there are two things going on. I think social media is a little bit dangerous at times. Well, I say a little bit dangerous. That's probably an understatement. (laughs) It's very dangerous at times. I worry about the Wild West of social media Mm. when it comes to journalism because I think that sometimes too much misinformation is being shed. I wouldn't go on Twitter for a long time. When I was on air, I didn't have a Twitter account because I just didn't want to be sucked into endless conversations with thousands of individuals across the Southwest who didn't like the color of my tie that night, or they didn't like the way I'd introduced an item about the government or whatever it might have been. I thought, I don't want to get drawn into endless battles on social media with people. I've seen some brilliant things on social media. And some brilliant things shared and some amazing moments and touching moments and funny moments. But I do worry about the spread of stories that have maybe not had the journalistic rigor attached to them that we would have done at the BBC or other media organizations do. So where technology and social media has allowed this amazing ability for anyone to broadcast, Mm. to send their stories out to the world. There's a counter argument to that. It is a bit of sort of running away from itself. You know, it's going a bit crazy without anyone sort of regulating it. We no. had editors, we had guidelines. There are lots of people who think that the BBC was biased one way or the other, but we did have guidelines and we had rules and we had editors mm. and we checked and checked. Didn't always get it right, despite well, our does, checking. But, yeah. but we had that responsibility. Mm. Whereas if you're publishing on social media you can say what you like. and you're not a trained journalist, you think, oh, I'll just share this. I I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds like it might be. I'll just stick it out there and see what happens. Yes. Very dangerous.
3: It is. And so I guess there is that problem about misinformation, because just because it's out there doesn't mean it's true. No. And in the same way, I've got a friend who reads a particular newspaper that is very well written, and he's read parts of it out to me. And I think, yeah, that is beautifully written, Mm. but it doesn't mean it's true just because it's interesting and entertaining. I used to get this. This isn't a new phenomenon
1: either. So before social media started to take off, I used to present the phone in program on BBC (laughs) Radio Devon at lunchtime which was one of the great things I did. I loved it because it was a bit freewheeling. We didn't know what the callers were going to say or what subjects they were going to bring up. So every day we'd set off on a path of you may want to talk about this, you may want to talk about that, and then they'll come up with something completely left field and you have to go with it. But there would be times when some callers would come on and they would tell me something in a very authoritative way. Mm. This is fact. Justin, did you know such and such is happening? And this is happening. And you know, do you know we're not allowed to buy sausages by the pound anymore? Or we're not allowed to do this anymore? And I, I said, really? I, where have you got this from? Well, I read it in the paper this morning. And they would have read it from a newspaper with a particularly political yeah, of point of view, yeah. which is fair enough. That's their political persuasion. And they buy the newspaper that matches their political persuasion. But it's when they come on and report it as fact. Oh, yes. And then I would have to scramble around and think, hang on a minute. Where did this story originate? How much of this is true? And then we'd have to find the facts and fill in the facts. Because one thing I didn't want was for the rest of the listening public to go away and think, Well, I heard on Radio Devon's phone in today that Brussels sprouts are going to be banned or that this is going to be banned. And I think, no, no, that's not the story. There's an element of something there, but that's not the story. But sometimes people will just read the headlines or read a
3: political point of view from a newspaper and quoted as fact. Yeah, I suppose that it was ever thus. But you're now helping to train the next generation Mm. of journalists. And are we in good hands? Are we going to be all right? Not because you're teaching them, but (laughs) I mean, you look at (laughs) young people. Yes, I mean, I'm sure they're in good hands with you. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Are we in good hands with the next generation of journalists? It's
1: interesting because they are approaching journalism in a very different way. They don't watch television at all. They don't consume their news via television or radio. At all, right? It's all via their phones and via social media, which is why I said earlier on about how you have to be so careful with social media now, because in many ways for the generation coming up now, it is their primary, if not only, source of news. So it's interesting how they approach stories. And I think growing up, the generation I'm working with now, the students I'm working with now, they've grown up with social media. It's been part of their lives pretty much from day one. And so... They rely on it for everything and therefore they have a different view of news. They consume news through that prism of social media. And last week, I set some of them a task to find some news. And one of the stories that they got hold of, which they thought was great fun, which it was, but I would argue that perhaps it wasn't serious news. They found a story on social media that the biggest ever chip had been found at Weatherspoons. Right, and they thought, can we do something on this? A nice, well, it's a nice little social media story. Yes, you get a lot of likes and interest. Someone will read that as they're flicking through Twitter but i wouldn't call that journalism no but that's where the grey area is now yeah. journalism can mean anything to anyone really a story is a story if it's interesting to you and some people might say that's journalism some people might say that's a bit of old nonsense but mm. it is interesting how they approach News in a very different way to how I did. And I have to adapt. I have to think I'm trying not to even use the term television anymore. When I talk to them about making content, it's making content for platforms now. Right. Okay. Because television sitting down and watching the news when the BBC decides to put the news out at six o'clock or 10 o'clock is not how they consume news at all. And I don't think they ever will. And so the idea of talking about television sounds ancient to them. Isn't that funny? The television is a screen and it's not a platform. It's a screen via which they get their platforms. Yes. So YouTube and TikTok yeah. and all the other platforms, Amazon and Netflix and all those things. They don't sit down and watch a program at six o'clock
3: because no. that's when it's on. <laughs> and I'm such a luddite. I can remember when streaming services started to become more mainstream and I was thinking that's ridiculous why would anyone ever do that yeah. now like, you know, I think it's ridiculous that you wait for a scheduled yeah. time yeah. for something to come on well, that the same. you must watch I'm the same
1: I don't watch programmes hardly at all when they go out I did watch Top Gear when it went out on Sunday on the time it went out because I just wanted to see it there and then and someone's told me I have to watch it but it's I will watch yeah. it
3: on catch up but
1: yeah but this is the great thing about it you are released from the schedule now you can make your own schedule pick your own programmes watch them when you want and at whatever time you want whatever mix of programs you want to watch it's brilliant from that point of view it's liberated it but it does raise the question over longer term terrestrial TV Yeah, because
3: people's viewing habits have changed enormously oh, in the last few years younger people want things when they want it on yeah. their terms yeah. and I suppose one thing it has freed up is scheduling in the sense that I watched Squid Game you know, a yeah. very popular series and I realised that some of the shows were an hour and ten minutes long some of them are thirty minutes long yes. but if you're not broadcasting no. it on a schedule no. you can make them as long as they yeah. need to be. Absolutely. That's quite
1: interesting, yeah. Mitch, isn't it? Yeah. The whole industry has changed and I have to keep thinking about that when I'm talking to the students now. In fact, I read a very interesting article. There was an article in the Guardian newspaper the other day because one of the big names at Sky News, Adam Bolton, has announced he's leaving. Yeah. And he's hinted that he's leaving because he feels at 62 he is no longer the right age to be on television and that television is moving in a direction away from programs centred around a presenter and I think he's right I think whereas in the past the presenter was sort of the focal point of the program and then the program was built around the presenter so it it was the news with Hugh Edwards or it was the news with Trevor McDonald in more recent times on ITV that's not the case anymore the big names are not the attraction And those programs are not as attractive as they used to be because that generation are not sitting down and watching the news so they don't care who's presenting the news. So Adam Bolton has written this article or the article's been written about Adam Bolton but the article says is the age of the news anchor over? The era of the big name television news anchor is coming to an end and I think that probably sums up where we're at with television
3: news. So you had your career at the best of times then?
1: Well, there's part of me that thinks that. I think there's still room for it. I mean, television news bulletin's spotlight still gets a massive audience, uh, It's still hugely popular. I can't think of any other alternative to delivering Southwest news, local news, in that format. Mm. You're not going to sit down and find it on social media and watch snippets of it in 30-second mm. chunks on social media. You won't get the same no. coverage But how long it can be sustained, I don't know. I hope it's around for a bit longer. But I think we're in interesting times where things are moving more and more to, as you said, the freedom to pick and choose news from whatever source you want
3: or any program from whatever source you want and view it when you want. So you weren't ever tempted away from the Southwest, were you? You didn't ever feel that you wanted to go and do national or international stuff?
1: No, there was a while back, there was a moment, I seem to remember, when we had the Eclipse going on in 1999 and I was reporting from Devon County Council's headquarters in Exeter and I was at their traffic control centre. And I was doing live broadcasts in the run-up to the eclipse because you will remember this well, Stuart. There were predictions that the southwest would grind to a halt. Oh, the whole world was going to end. That, yeah, yeah <laughs> that millions of people would come here and that the roads would be completely blocked from Exeter all the way back to London and so on, and that nobody would be able to move. So I was told to go and spend three or four days in the traffic mm. control centre and report regularly on what was happening. And we had all these cameras and all these screens showing the various roads in the southwest. And I did several reports for Spotlight, but I did national broadcasts from there as well. It was the early days of the BBC News Channel and they needed to fill airtime and they would come to me quite often and say, how's it looking? And I'd describe the picture and so on. And I got noticed by a senior editor at ITN who was obviously keeping an eye on what the BBC News Channel was doing. And through various channels, he got a message back to the newsroom in Plymouth. Would I contact him about the possibility of a Mm. job at ITN? And I gave the contact, but nothing ever came of it. But I didn't push it either mm. because, no, I didn't really want to leave the Southwest. This is my home. Mm-hmm. Always has been. I grew up in Cornwall and I just love being here. I mean, I was so lucky. I had the job that I wanted to do, but in the most beautiful region, the region I know well. And I just felt it was right that I was talking to my neighbors, the people yeah. I live alongside in the southwest i didn't want to go and be somewhere else and be an incomer and be telling the residents of that area their news when i yeah. didn't know what was most pertinent to them or not i felt i was comfortable here i knew what i was talking about mm-hmm. here i knew the people i
3: knew the places and i didn't want to go anywhere else i feel exactly the same with my job you know i'm lucky enough to have been here for a long time this area yes it's a bit of a village but that's a good thing i know people i know what people care about i know places yeah. and it's very powerful and you just before we wrap up, you did a very clever thing earlier when you said you didn't want to make the news about you of still not telling me anything about Justin. <laughs> so who are you? Have you got family? Yes. Dogs? What do, you, what do you do? Yes, married, got a
1: stepdaughter, got a dog, got a cat. <laughs> I love going out gardening and canoeing and... Just being in the countryside, we live in rural southeast Cornwall. I mean, that sounds like it's in the middle of nowhere, but not that far from Plymouth, really. But I never wanted to leave Cornwall. When I moved to Spotlight, I moved up from Truro, and I came as close to the border as I could (laughs) and stayed on that side. And then used to come into Plymouth for work and go back to Cornwall again in
3: the evening. Well, thank you for joining Devon, Chamber of Commerce, on our podcast. (laughs) I won't ask you anything really controversial like jam first or cream first, but no, we really appreciate you joining us and i'm really grateful actually for hearing all your stories and i think we could probably have you back and hear another thousand (laughs) stories about your your career but it's lovely to see you again i haven't seen you for ages and am really grateful for your time and good luck training the next generation of journalists thank you Stuart. it's been a great pleasure thanks very much indeed thank you justin
0: and now chambermaid introducing business owners from across the southwest
3: Hello there, and welcome back to part two of our In Conversation with podcast. This section is chamber made, and today I am joined by Steve Ricketts, who, amongst other things, is the Shurford Skills and Training Coordinator. For those who don't know, what is Shurford and why does it need a Skills and Training Coordinator?
2: Shurford is a new town on the edge of Plimstock there. It's the biggest development in the southwest, right. apart from Hinkley Point. It's a new town, it's five and a half thousand homes. It's three primary schools, one secondary school. There's going to be a leisure centre. There's going to be everything a new town should have. There's going to be 12,000 people living there. Over the next. Fifteen to twenty years, yeah. So I'm running the Sherford Training Centre there, the biggest on-site training centre in the country, because we do have a skills shortage as far as construction's concerned. So we're there to try and fill the gaps, and we've got massive support from the developers there, the house builders, Taylor Wimpy and vistry to make that happen.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, everyone's got a skills crisis in the moment. There's shortage of good people everywhere, but particularly construction industry. And I guess Hinckley has drawn quite a few people away.
2: It has, but there's so many opportunities now in construction. And it's Mm. just brilliant to be trying to celebrate that and getting people through the training centre. We've got two flagship courses that we do. We do the Building Heroes programme for the military, Mm. guys and girls in resettlement. And it's just inspirational to be around them at the training centre most days. And then we've got our construction industry funded courses and they're for anybody in the city. And they're absolutely brilliant as well. And we're getting superb job outcomes through that so it's a really spiritual place up there we're doing some really good things so it's a real hive of activity
3: yeah and i suppose if you were saying it's going on for a number of years then this is a good career to get into
2: because you've got some certain work for the next 10-15 years absolutely every trade is crying out for people they're desperate brickies roofers carpentry plastering dry lining you name it and they're great careers And like you say, there's 20 years of work there and they can earn really good money.
3: Yeah, I understand they can. And of course, one of the things I heard was that builders and hairdressers for some reason are two jobs where people have the most satisfaction from their work. And I think it's because you're creating something. You know, a lot of jobs, you don't get to the end of the day and see what you've done. You just are working but when you're a building you can go past it for years to come and go I built that I did that I did the roof on that or I did the windows on that it must be very satisfying
2: it's incredible I mean especially to be there from the beginning when the first bricks were laid pretty much in 2015 to see it now not many people can say they're involved in building a new town and it is oh. inspirational stuff it is like I say it is fairly spiritual to see that development happen And the tradespeople can point to it and be really, really proud of themselves because they're leaving a lasting legacy. And how's it going as a development? Is it on track? Was it badly hit by COVID? Construction was one of those industries where it wasn't really affected. The building work carried on and the houses are still selling fast. So construction is booming, Mm. absolutely booming at the moment.
3: And what about the sort of layout and design? Because I think the early designs had some criticism, didn't they? They were kind of lots of townhouses and people like the old fashioned sort of have your own detached or semi-detached square of land you know
2: is it evolving as it goes yeah they're keeping with the town code the traditional build Mm -hmm. and it looks really great and that's what we do at the skill center that's one of the reasons why we had the skill center because there is that unique building style Mm. with the english bond and that's what we're doing at the training center but we're getting learners in from around the city and we've got that particular focus as well on the veterans coming through the service leavers And they're going across the region, across the country to find work. So, yeah, we're here to support everyone. We're a hub for the region. We're a hub for the country.
3: Well, as a signatory of the Armed Forces Covenant, I'm pleased to hear that because we support service people as much as we can, especially as they leave and try and help them into other employment, which is fantastic. And they come with so many skills and they're motivated and they're fit and healthy usually. I mean, I would have said they're absolutely prime for your industry.
2: It's an absolute joy to be around them. So one of our most recent courses started last week. They're five-week programmes. The property maintenance courses, they look at all aspects of construction, so they get to see what they like. They may come in with the idea that they'll enjoy brick, but by the end of it, they might think, actually, I really enjoyed the plastering. Mm. and I didn't really like the carpentry that much. So it's fantastic to be around these guys. They're inspirational. They've got Mm. transferable skills. This city and guilds construction multi-trade course would normally take a year, mm. but because they're so quick, we do it in five weeks, and wow. it's just absolutely brilliant. That is very quick. Them.
3: Maybe I should retrain.
2: <laughs> yeah, and we have City College Plymouth that deliver the training. Our patrons, yeah. And we're investing in staff to get more staff to deliver the courses, and it's just going from strength to strength.
3: Hmm. And going back a step, you mentioned the military, and I see you joined the TA for a while. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. See, I've done my research.
2: <laughs> yeah, my dad was in the re. Me, kind of the old school sixteen to forty, did twenty four years, and I thought I needed to sort of give it a go myself. Yeah. It was a short spell. I did a year and six rifles, infantry for a year, 2013. And yeah, that lives with me now. Does it? Those training weekends, they were difficult. Especially I went in at 33 as well. So I was one of the oldest people there. And obviously I was in the office Monday to Friday and then to be doing the weekends, it was a real physical challenge and a mental challenge at the same time. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I'll bet.
2: What did you take away from it? (sighs) Well, there were times where you were just sat in the woods at four in the morning soaking wet on watch and that Mm. sort of thing and then you really think about life and you think about who's important and just the discipline and the banter and the way of life like i say, i only dipped into it as far as that sort of reserve angle goes but all that training it lives with me it really does and i'm glad i did it yeah isn't it great you've done it there was something you wanted to try you tried it And if you learn from
3: it, I think that's the most important thing, isn't it? Do it and then move on.
2: Just when you get given a weapon and it's just surreal and Mm. got so much respect for the guys that do it full time and that have been on the tours and all the rest of it. So I've got some great friends there that I still keep in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. Tough,
3: tough job. And we're very grateful that people will do it for us. I certainly couldn't do it now. But you've also had a very career
2: in the public sector. So tell us about that. What have you done there? I suppose my background really is welfare to work, work for various different companies, working links in Plymouth I also had a stint in East London for Reading Partnership when one of the most deprived communities in the country yeah. helping long-term unemployed people into work I was going into tower blocks on outreach I was in local markets and that really did open my eyes to the world and obviously yeah I was a Plymouth City councillor for 12 years which was great fun, representing the community that I still live in now. And, yeah, there's something great about giving something back to your community and giving that public service, yeah. And you're going to do it again, I think?
3: More than likely. Try and go back into the political world? You missed it that
2: much? Yeah, I'm passionate about my community, the Mutley mm-hmm. Green Bank area, Ward. More than likely I'll stand again next year as an independent. Mm-hmm. Just lost out by 13 votes last time. Oh, that is a close vote, isn't it? So, looking to be the first independent actually elected to Plymouth City Council. There's quite a lot of independence now on the council but they're mm. generally just people that have defected and had a fallout and all the mm. rest of it but it would be nice to make a bit of history to be the first to be elected elected as opposed to be yeah. representing a party and then stand yeah. down you
3: yeah. Well, the Chamber's apolitical because we have to be. We have to work with all parties of whatever colour. And I'm lucky, really, we've got a great relationship with the City Council, the previous administration and this one. And that's really positive. And it's great to see some of the things we can do together. I think the pandemic actually showed what the public and private sector can do when they work together on something. I think it's really powerful stuff.
2: There's some fantastic people within the Council, without a doubt. It's kind of something we do we bash the council don't we yeah as a country we bash our council and there are some negative aspects but there are some great people in local councils and there's some passionate councillors in there as well so i'm really glad to hear that you have that relationship and it's still there with the team
0: yeah it is if you'd like to feature on a future episode of in conversation with send an email to info at freshairstudios.com
3: we just have that good relationship. Someone once told me that the definition of a good professional relationship is you can have a difficult conversation with no nasty aftertaste and mostly just work together for the good of the businesses in the city.
2: Yeah, definitely. I led the coronavirus group within the community I live. Got about 60 people together students and locals and we tied in with the council there to get some support and recognition there and it was fascinating to see all the different staff members that moved from doing different jobs and then they were supporting that. It was incredible who I was liaising with people that were in economic development, but then they were helping with the coronavirus support. So, yeah, there was massive shuffling of staff at that time, at the peak sort of time.
3: Absolutely, and I worked with them, you know, an absolute respect for them. And we worked so closely together, and I was really grateful for it. Firstly, just for the close working, but secondly, because it was good for the business in the city, I was, like everyone, I think at the time the pandemic struck, I was really, really scared for business. I thought, there's gonna be a lot of jobs lost, a lot of livelihoods, a lot of businesses going under. Thankfully it's not been anything like as bad as yeah. I thought it may be. And that's not to belittle in any way anyone who has struggled during the pandemic or any businesses that are still struggling, because it has been exceptionally tough for people, you know, and we have the double whammy of Brexit with COVID. Yeah. So businesses are still struggling now. But we're working with them to come out the other side. But for us in the chamber, my chairman said to me, When times are good, people don't really appreciate the chamber it's there and it's fine and you know but when times are bad is when they really see what we do and that was what happened in covid businesses needed our support yeah definitely. and they always knew that we advocated for business we lobbied government But we could show real examples of where we had asked government for support for certain things.
2: And they'd actually listened and delivered it. And that was exciting. That was feeling like we were really making a difference. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's what I think the takeaway from everything that's been. It's about how you treat people. That was what, for me, the pandemic was about it was about how you treated people in extremely difficult circumstances to have organizations like yourself and the council working Mm. for the community the business community particularly Mm. is tremendous yeah people will never forget that
3: no i hope not and i hope we learn from it and move on and some great things have actually come out of it i mean the kickstart scheme which i think is brilliant we set ourselves up as a kickstart gateway and at the start i remember thinking we might get 40 or 50 young people Onto kickstart placements we've got 600 live placements we've placed 320 but the best statistic I can give is that of those who finished their placement 70 percent have gone into employment well, full-time employment and 79% into some sort of employment yeah, and I think that's fantastic because these were 16 to 24 year
2: olds who were furthest from employment and their future potentially was looking very bleak. That's fantastic yeah that's replicating what we're doing here at the skills centre yeah mm-hmm. we've just recently done a CITB funded course in partnership with Prince's Trust so we were working with some young people and we've got some superb job outcomes the opportunities are there now the economy is opened up mm. after that lull and I'm finding that there's more job vacancies at the moment than we've actually got people for.
3: Oh absolutely I mean there's just a shortage of people generally that shouldn't I suppose come as a surprise being that Brexit and coronavirus has meant that we have a massive amount fewer people actually to work here but I guess that's going to drive innovation in other ways so where automation can happen it will where people can work more than one job or in a sort of gig economy that might help but I think the marketplace will will work it out somehow market forces will say that people will get paid and jobs will be there which is great.
2: I think Brexit will provide opportunities I've always been a supporter of Britain, their independence, led the campaign in Plymouth at that time. And I think, yeah, it was never going to be easy because we've come out of the European Union. So I think the next 10 years, 20 years will be good for the country.
3: Yeah, like I said, we're apolitical. I don't take a view on whether it's good or bad. There are certainly short-term impacts for business that have hurt a lot of businesses but business will find solutions. That's what business does. It will find solutions to things, it'll find opportunity, it'll find a way around. It's just a shame, I guess, that we had Brexit and coronavirus, double whammy, and times are gonna be tough. People are still paying back or have started to pay back loans taken out during that period at a time when their markets abroad are probably not as vibrant as we'd like. But as a chamber, because we deal a lot with international trade, we're trying very hard to open up new markets and create new opportunities. And I hope our nearest trading partner does realise that we're worth trading with. We have a lot to offer and a lot of people who are prepared to buy their
2: stuff too. Absolutely. As much as people may have views on the European Union, I personally love Europe. Mm. And they're right on our doorstep and we should be having that friendly, neighbourly relationship. And Without a doubt, it's in everyone's interest. Yeah.
3: We are Europeans, whether you like it or not, whether you call yourself British or whatever. The UK is part of the European continent. Absolutely right. So
2: like it or lump it, we are.
3: And I think actually most people like Europeans. You know, whenever I travel, the stereotypes go out the window. We always stereotype perhaps one nation is arrogant or another nation doesn't like us or whatever. But actually, when I go there, I find them nothing but friendly and helpful and want to learn more from you and want
2: to talk to you and things. I think it's great. Without a doubt, I've been to various amazing places in Europe, Rome, and had some of the greatest breaks away Mm. with my family that I've ever had. So... Yeah, to explore the world, to explore Europe, you can only open your mind. It's, you know, we're one world, we're one family. We should all be looking after each other.
3: Absolutely. I was lucky enough years ago to do a banger rally from Plymouth down to Banjul in the Gambia. And when you were seeing the real poverty in Senegal, you suddenly realise how small the world is. There is a village and they're next door neighbours. But we kind of blank that out.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. My sister lives in South Africa and that blows my mind. When I go there and see how people are living, And we had a South African delegation actually a couple of years ago that came to see Sherford and Mm. I was trying to explain our housing shortage and (laughs) we're just poles. Poles apart. They look at the houses that we live in in this country with our heating and we're spoiled here, we really are.
3: We are. So you've done a lot of travel, but what keeps you here? What drags you back to this fine city?
2: Well, I grew up in Hampshire actually. Oh, did you? Right, I was born in Hampshire, in Aldershot. In Petersfield, near Portsmouth. And I basically came to Plymouth for university, yeah and okay. you know it was by the sea sounded like Portsmouth <laughs> don't start me on man. <laughs> as soon as I was on the hoe and with the lighthouse and obviously my dad had the connection at the Citadel it was done for me so you Plymouth it's a beautiful beautiful place there was nothing that was going to compete I was always going to come to Plymouth and stayed here ever since I did have that stint when I left the university I was president of the student union for a couple of years and I did get that graduate job in London mm. in one of the most deprived areas in the country in the shadow of Airy Wharf and I didn't think I'd be coming back at that point but I got a call about the local election in Plymouth at that time and I just took a bit of a punt and I had Plymouth in my heart yeah. and I came back and I've uh, been ever since but I can't really imagine not being in Plymouth now, it's my home.
3: No. I've tried to escape twice and it's drawn me back I've got to love Plymouth, love the whole of the county that we're in in fact I like the whole of the south um, very controversial as Chief Executive of Devon Chamber to say but I think Cornwall is spectacular and we've got a lot in common and aren't we lucky? We're very lucky we've got it made here. It's always
2: exciting when you have friends down to visit and you can just take them down to the Barbican and the Ho and the Royal William Yard and they're like blown away. Yeah. It's like another world. It's, yeah. you know, when you've lived in different parts of the country and you're just so proud and it's the fresh air and the sea and the beautiful restaurants and pub offer we have. It's incredible.
3: That's a good place to kind of draw it to a conclusion actually because I was going to say that what I've heard for years, ever since I came there, I came here when I was about eight, I've heard old oh, Plymouth a city with potential but finally over the last couple of years I've been hearing Plymouth is a city that is realising its potential and it is a fantastic city with great potential and what you're doing at Sherford is helping us build that even further so thank you for that. Thanks for joining us. It's been an
2: absolute pleasure, thank you. Thanks Steve.
0: If you're not already a Chamber member and you'd like to join, membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow, and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hardwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.